I'm Mary Nightingale. Welcome to the Piper podcast, How I Grew My Brand, where we talk to successful founders about how they got to where they are, the highs, the lows along the way, what worked, what didn't, and how they navigated the pivotal inflection points en route to becoming what Piper calls a brand legend. Having backed more than 50 brands over 35 years, Piper's identified these inflection points as 7-17-70. Now, whether that's millions in turnover, numbers of employees, perhaps retail or restaurant sites, whatever, these are the key points where businesses, they think, are forced to adapt and change. Today, I'm with Bree Reed, founder of the ethical size-inclusive clothing brand Snag. Breeze started Snag in 2018 to create tights for all shapes and sizes after she spotted a gap in the market for tights that actually fit. And um, given that the brand's now sold more than 10 million pairs to 2 million customers and turns over £40 million a year, it would seem that that gap was indeed pretty substantial. Welcome, Bree. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it is so interesting to meet you. So explain more about exactly what Snag does. So really, we're about inclusion. And I think, you know, a lot of people feel absolutely disenfranchised from fashion. Then I had one lady that told me she thought that fashion hated her. And I think a lot of women share that opinion, a lot of people in general. You know, 70% of people have cried in the changing rooms just because the pressure of buying clothes and the pressure of the atmosphere is just too much for them. So we want to create a space where people can feel really safe, really welcomed, no matter what size they are, no matter what gender they are, you know, no matter who they are, they're welcome, they're accepted. And we've got something that fits them, you know, and it's really important that we offer those clothes in every single size so that everybody can feel there's something for them. And I guess, you know, in one level we sell clothes, but what we really sell is people being able to look on the outside like they feel on the inside. And I think that's such a fundamental part of being you that it's really special. It sounds so obvious when you put it like that, but how did the idea come about? I had one of those massively embarrassing experiences. Um, So I was walking in Edinburgh on a, a very posh shopping street called George Street, And I was, you know, walking along, my tights were falling down, they were falling down over my thighs, which is fine because you could shimmy them up. But at one point they started falling down past my knees. And at that point you look really silly while you're trying to like pull them up. (laughs) And you can't walk. No, you can't walk, you can't really do anything. So I thought, you know, I had this image in my mind, I would just slip them down, I would step out of my shoes, take my tights off, put my shoes back on, put my tights in my bag and walk on. And this would be done in one like seamless motion. Ocean. Um, so I thought that's that's what I'm going to do. Did it obviously not quite as seamlessly as you know it was in my head, and um, you know turned round to check that no one had seen because obviously no one would see me do that, and there were like 200 people staring at me. And at that moment, it's either one of those things that you take. And, you know, you wake up in the middle of the night in cold sweats being like, oh, my God, I can't believe I did that. Like, why? Why was I so embarrassing? Or you kind of make fun of it and you talk to people about it. So I decided I didn't need any more of those cold sweat memories in my mind. So I was going to actually make light of it. And I started talking to my friends about it. And everyone had a story like that about tights. You know, it wasn't wasn't just me. It turned out they didn't fit anybody from super skinny people to tall, short, every size, every shape, every person had an issue with tights. And at that point, I thought, you know, this really sucks. You know, the problem isn't with the people. The problem is with the product. And that means we should be able to change it. And then I started doing some research because I'm a a data obsessive. So the first thing I did was I did a demographically representative sample of 3,000 people across the UK and found out that 90% of those people, 90%, said tights don't fit. And then I started looking at how much the global tights market was worth and conservative estimates put it at about $56 billion. So, you know, at that point you realise you have a fundamentally broken market, that the product doesn't make people happy. So there was a huge opportunity um, to to make some tights that actually fit. How do you make tights that fit, though? I mean, surely the point about tights is that people are in all shapes and sizes. And even though they come in different sizes, 
they can't fit everyone. Well, so the thing is, they didn't actually come in different sizes. So, you know, after having done a year's worth of research on tights, I bought every single pair of tights available to buy. Suddenly, what I worked out was that actually all tights were the same width. They were just different lengths. So people thought that if they made them longer, they would fit bigger people. And that isn't isn't the case. And knitting does stretch over two dimensions, but but not that much. So then starting to talk to tights manufacturers, I was like, so is this right? You know, are they all the same size? And they were like, yes, we knit them all on the same knitting machine. And I was like, wow, mind absolutely blown. So the first thing we did at Snag was actually develop different sizes. So we brought old knitting machines out of retirement, so from the 1920s, um, and then we designed completely new knitting machines in the bigger sizes, so we could actually do seven completely different sizes that, that really fit. So we can cover, you know, everyone from like, you know, a size four up to a size 36 comfortably. And we also look at different elements as well. So we look at their height and we look at their body shape as well as their size. So we can get a really good matrix style fit rather than just going, you know, you're a size 12. These are the ones you should wear. Okay, and for men uh, as well as women, I mean, really properly inclusive. So very, very tall, very short, wider, narrower, whatever, all covered. Absolutely. 10% of our customers are men. And, you know, we're seeing it, you know, come about more and more as like a stylish accessory. You know, if you're a man and you like wearing shorts, wear them all year round with a stylish pair of tights. Um, We've had people get married in them. But our biggest um, male market is actually builders who wear them underneath their jeans all winter to keep them extra toasty warm. Um, I was on the tube once and actually saw a builder with his pair of snags underneath his his jeans. And I was like, oh, my God, look. Did he say anything to him? No, I just stared obsessively, which was probably wrong. Um, But, (laughs) yeah, it was was very exciting to actually see it, you know, happen in the flesh, although I'd heard about it anecdotally. So so builders love snags. Um, Just a little bit about you and where you came from what were you doing when you had this revelation what was your job so I was running a kind of Facebook consultancy I've always been in, involved in marketing and particularly social marketing is is my obsession and at the time I was helping other brands you know work on their social marketing so a lot of online e-commerce um, products and you are a computer science and technology graduate and self-confessed, as you said, data nerd. I am, yeah, psychology and computer science. So, yeah, it does make me very nerdy. I love numbers. Like, I absolutely love them. I love spreadsheets. I love analysing. Um, it's my favourite thing and my happy place. Is it seriously? Explain. Understanding things is so important to me and understanding data is so important. And, you know, I see a big spreadsheet full of numbers and for me it's just, you know, patterns of analysis and you know when you can actually understand not just what the customer says but what they do your ability to make better decisions is just so enhanced and for me that's that's a real benefit so the data told you that there was a huge gap in the market for for tight absolutely did you always want to start your own business were you always an entrepreneur in the making do you think for me i think being an entrepreneur is much more about having a really good idea I think you you have to have a great idea, and I never wanted to do a, what I call a, a me too business. You know, I didn't I didn't want to copy someone else and you know just do it better. I wanted to actually have a, a real idea that could change the world, and I was just lucky that like that idea actually did strike one day. Rather than just being, as as you said, a lot of founders start businesses simply to be an entrepreneur. I think they do, and being an entrepreneur is is cool and people want to do it and you know you've got kids in school that want to grow up being an entrepreneur and I think for me there's there's kind of two things there's working in startups which I think a lot of people get confused with being an entrepreneur and you can work in that kind of energized fast-paced world with out actually you know doing that on your own idea you can support other people until you have your idea um, but I think the idea is important and I think a lot of people get their dreams crushed because they try and start their own business with an idea that isn't good enough or a market size that isn't big enough or you know just with bad product market fit and I think when you're in that situation it's really disheartening because you put your whole you know soul into it and everything you own and your entire being and then it doesn't work out and I always feel really 
really sad for those people. And I think it's often not, you know, it's, it's almost never the effort. It's much more about, you know, is the idea at the start good enough? Does it have enough scope? Does it have legs? You know, can you push it? You know, is it simple enough? All of those things. You say that you're not one of those founders who get up at seven and go to the gym. What, what, <laughs> you're shaking your head. What, what are you like? So I think naps are really important, really highly rated in my world. I love a um, nap. Naps are great. Mm. And I think I work a lot better when I'm not stressed and, you know, when I'm not tired and when I feel relaxed. And for me, that's about structuring my day in a way where that works. So, you know, I don't normally work before 9.30 because 9.30 is my kind of natural, I'm switched on time. And if I'm tired in the afternoon, I'll take a nap as well. And you prioritise the things that are important in your life. And I think that's absolutely fine to do. You know, you don't need to be working 16 hours a day, every day. You don't need to, like, put that much effort at the expense of your health into it. And I think it's much better to be more balanced and to think more and do less, I guess. Mm. I guess it's lazy entrepreneuring. You know, you do a lot of time thinking stuff through and then working out what will work. And then you just do the things that will work rather than doing everything. What motivates you, though? Is it financial success? Is it is it status? Is it recognition? Is it the respect of your peers? And I think I kind of know the answer by the look on your face, but tell me what motivates you. So for me, it's about changing the world. When I talk to our customers, which is all the time, and I can see how much having an acceptive, inclusive place is for them, how much just having a simple pair of tights that fit, that means they can wear dresses, skirts, things they haven't worn for 20 years, that means they can dress on the outside like they feel on the inside. When you see the benefit that gives to somebody's life, it makes me want to give it to everyone. And it's never fast enough for me because there's people out there who are hugely unhappy and I want to get to them before they're more unhappy. And we had this lady actually and she wrote into Snag Labs, which is our um, development group. And she had a 13 year old daughter who was really struggling with her kind of self-image and her body positivity. And in every order, we do these little postcards, which we commissioned from body positive artists. And they're, you know, they're really beautiful, colourful, inspiring. And what she wanted to do was to plaster her entire bathroom in these cards so that her daughter would feel that whoever she was she was represented and whoever she was she was beautiful and whoever she was she was accepted and she didn't have all of the cards so everyone kind of clubbed together to send her all of the cards that she didn't have and she like did her bathroom up to but the community all yeah the whole together. community did and she ended up getting all of the cards that you know she wanted and she did her bathroom and you're just looking at that and you're going you know that's the difference we make is you know somebody who felt disenfranchised from their body disenfranchised from fashion and now feels included and accepted and like they have a place to go a place where they're loved and accepted for exactly who they are so for me I just want to get to everyone did you feel disenfranchised was that you when you look back a few years maybe god absolutely I've always felt you know, hugely, I've had so many issues with, you know, my own self-acceptance and my own body confidence journey. You know, I, I had periods of my life where I didn't want to go outside of the house because you just felt hideous, you know, where you'd wear a pair of black trousers and like a black smock top. And, you know, it was just, it was painful to leave the house. It was painful to have anyone look at me. And I felt so bad about myself. And I don't know, it's, it's just so tangible to me when I, you know, I see people and, it's funny with our swimwear because when we, we launched it, everyone was like, oh, my God, it's far too racy and I could never wear that outside. And now we've got people going, yeah, like I, I wore it outside, like I wore a bikini on the beach and and like nothing happened and it was cool and I felt amazing. <laughs> nothing happened. <laughs> and you're just like, yeah, that's that's it. You know, it's like all we have to do is take those steps, but they're so hard for people. So a lot of what we do is is encouraging people, you know, in that process. Because there's a lot of judging, isn't there? There's a there? huge amount of judging, you know, all the time and, you know, from, from everyone. I mean, you know, I've got one of those mothers that's always like, you know, oh, you've put on weight, you know, oh, I wish you looked like I'd imagined you'd look when, I, you know, you were a child. Your mother like, says that. Yeah, and you're just like, wow, that, thanks for that, mum. Like, you know, that's, that's great. But, it, you know, it is, and I think it's not a, you know, it's not an experience that's unique to me. I think so many people struggle with their image. Men, women, you know, it's it's a universal thing. And 
we shouldn't feel like that. You know, we shouldn't feel that, you know, only thin people can be pretty. We shouldn't feel like, you know, you're worthless, you know, if you don't fit in society's expectations. And yeah, I think it's it's a big part of just reclaiming being able to be yourself. Mm. I've started getting tattoos, which is part of my body positivity journey. What does um, your mother think of that? It's actually my dad. My dad keeps going to me, you're never going to be able to get a job. Like, <laughs> I don't need a job. Work I'm all right, myself. Dad. Like, you know, you don't, you don't need to worry. And he's like, just, you know, don't, don't get any more of them. And I'm like, it's, it's fine, really. You know, it's, it's, I'm 40, it's my body. Like, you know, I can look after myself. Um, I'm turning over 40 million a year, Dad, I'll be all right. Yeah, yeah don't, don't worry about the tattoos. But he, he gets very, like, very concerned about me, bless him. Oh, it's a, Back to starting the business. You started it without co-founders, as I understand. So how difficult was that? Um, it, was a, it was a really kind of interesting process because very quickly I like built a team around me of people who I'd worked with before or I knew very well. And I think having that team that are going to be ridiculously honest with you absolutely helps. And I think you need to be able to push that. But I also think... Equally, it's helpful having somebody that has the final say. And I think that's there's lots of times where everybody's disagreed with me and I've been like, no, we're going to do it this way. I don't care. I don't care. And I think sometimes you need to be able to push stuff forward. So it does make you a little bit more decisive. And I think that's a good thing. And how big is your is your core team? So we've got about 120 people in total now. About 70 of those work in our, in our warehouses and the rest of that is kind of core team. So it's, it's a big team now and that's split up over the, the directors, which are all, you know, all really good. We've got an amazing CFO, Sonia. We hired her very early on. Most people don't get a CFO till further through the journey, but it was one of the, the earliest hires we made because we just wanted to make sure that we didn't make any mistakes and that we were set up for the type of growth we wanted to do. And having her on board made such a big difference to be able to do that and to hold us to financial accounts, but also to allow us to really expand in the way that we wanted to and see when we were making money that we could invest. And, you know, also when we had to be a little bit more careful. Polly is our COO and she has done an amazing job um, setting warehouses up in Venlo and in Livingston and just making sure that we get everything out of the door. We're quite unusual in um, a C-suite team because we're we're mostly female. And, and are you all working together or do you work remotely? We all work remotely. The entire business is virtual. Apart from our warehouses, everyone works remotely. And that means we've had to learn how to hire for very specific personalities. So one of the big learn learnings we've made is that, you know, not everyone thrives in a in a virtual working environment. And actually it's quite hard to identify people who are going to love it. And we've had kind of a few, you know, important hires where, you know, they just haven't fitted in because they haven't liked that. And we're now learning how to, to find that earlier. And how do you get the the team working effectively together if no one is ever in the same room or am I just being very old-fashioned and linear? Well, so for us, it's all about outcomes, right? You know, it's like it doesn't matter if you're sitting at your desk eight hours a day, you know, you're paid to do your outcomes. And as long as your outcomes happen, then, you know, nobody minds where you are. And I think that's a, that's been a really key way of, of structuring the business. And you can take as much holiday, extra holiday as you want, as long as your outcomes are being met. We don't have start times and finish times. We don't run um, meetings in, in the same way as normal businesses. So we have um, WhatsApp chats where people contribute when they feel passionate about the subject. So, you know, rather than having everyone together at 9am on a Monday morning and, you know, somebody's worried about, you know, their cat who was sick overnight, the other person's just really hungry. Um, someone else has, you know, got something they don't want to do later, so is fixated on that. And you have a meeting and you're trying to get everyone's best ideas and nobody's actually, you know, in the right state of mind. We don't do it like that. We go, you know, you contribute when you are in the right state of mind, you know, when your cat's better, you know, when, when you've, you've had eaten. something to eat. Yeah. yeah, you know, it's like contribute when, when you feel passionate to the subject. What's the most challenging thing about being a leader? 
for us, it's been the big decisions that you have to make around things like, you know, COVID and Brexit. And we've had a lot of really, you know, huge out of your control decisions. And then you have to make decisions that affect a lot of people. And I think one of the things that really hits me now is that, you know, there's 120 snag people. But if you go down through the chain and you look at the people who, you know, actually make the products, there's, you know, there's hundreds of people involved in in what we do. So, you know, if I cock it up, <laughs> there's a lot of people's livelihoods on the line. So you have to start making really big, really hard decisions. And that's that's always difficult, you know, you need to, to make sure it's right, but you still need to make the decision. And you mentioned COVID. You had a, a, an enormous situation, so many businesses did, that, that landed on you when COVID happened. I, explain how you dealt with it. We were in a, a really kind of interesting place because we were growing really, really quickly, you know, 50% month on month growth. And then we, as we always do, you know, we, we spend a huge whack on marketing the previous month. Which is online stuff. Yeah, all online all, stuff. Yeah, yeah it's, it's what we do kind of month in, month out. And you get the return of that through that month and the next month. And then COVID struck and immediately we couldn't send 50% of our packages out because they all go overseas. So we were down to just our UK business. And then that was halved. So we're ending up at 25% of revenue that we had compared to the previous month and then we had Facebook knocking on our door going oh by the way that bill can you pay that right now all of it we were like huh <laughs> like no not not we, we kind of we we can't um, and, and how much did you owe them at this point so about about six hundred thousand pounds and the government were going you know don't panic you know there'll be loans coming through there'll be stuff like that so initially we were like we're not going to panic we did a, a big promotion with our customers where they could buy tights for NHS workers. So we did 24,000 pairs of tights for NHS workers. Everybody kept busy, kept positive, you know, kept trying to, to help people that were making a difference on the front line. And then eventually we realised because we're a relatively new business that we've grown really quickly, um, there was no way we were going to get the amount of money that we needed all the loans were slow in coming because we're an online business. We didn't get any of the physical grants that people got. So, you know, we just, we fell between the cracks of it. And at that point, our, our CFO said, look, you know, we're going to run out of money by July. We're not going to make it. Like, you know, that's it. Um, so I, you know, as ever, you know, I talk to our customers all the time. I went onto our Instagram and went, look, guys, you know, this is a situation. Does Does anybody have any ideas? And a group of our customers said, look, you know, we've got a really good idea. We think you should do a two for one offer. So buy one, get one free, but you don't get anything until November. So, you know, in November, it's tight season. We'll all be super excited to get tights, but we'll buy them now from you. And I was like, that's a great idea. And that was on a Sunday night. Um, Tom put it all live on the website over that Sunday night. It was live um, by Monday morning. And over the next five days, our customers bought £1.25 million worth of tights, wow. which was unbelievable. And that amount of money, we could pay Facebook back. We could fund all of the employees. We didn't have to lose any jobs. We, you know, they absolutely saved us in a way that the government couldn't. We had 10,000 emails of support from people. We had to split them all up amongst the management team and we all spent 48 hours crying our eyes out as we, <laughs> we answered them. And I was, I was crying. You answered them all? We answered every single one. We answer every communication we get from customers at all times anyway. This is the community that you call the snagglers. Yeah, the snagglers. And they are incredible. I don't think there's ever been a more inclusive, loving bunch of people in the entire world. Who are they? It's interesting, there's really no demographic splits within the snagglers. It's just, you know, people that that love and people that have felt disenfranchised and want to help people feel better about themselves. And, you know, they're an amazing group of people. We have um, a subgroup called Snag Labs, which is where we do all our development. That's got about 8,000 snagglers in. And they, you know... <laughs> Do exactly what you ask of them. So when we launch a new product, they are the most critical people in the entire world. And they'll like pull it apart and tell you absolutely everything that's wrong with it. And we do iterations and iterations and iterations until finally they're like, yes, we love this. 
So we started doing business updates to the Snagglers as well because we consider ourselves a co-owned brand with them. You know, we have we have nothing without them. They decide the products we do, the colours we do it in. You know, they're part of every kind of strategic decision we make. So we now report back to them on, on how the business is going every month as well. You've talked about radical co-ownership. That's That's the phrase you've used. Explain what does that actually mean? So for me, I see a lot of businesses and... They have a very defined idea about who they want their customer to be. And for me, your customer's always been your customer. You know, you can't control it. And, you know, you see businesses that go, I want my brand to be bought by, you know, hip CEOs in London. And, you know, you just like, you, you can't do that. You know, your brand is defined by the people who, who wear it. And I always think about it as kind of dwell time with a brand. So... You know, when somebody wears your tights for 12 hours a day, you have a high dwell time with that person. You know, people spend a lot of time in your product, which is very different from, say, I don't know, you had a travel pillow that you used once every six months and use it for an hour. You know, you don't have a high dwell time with that brand. But with our brand, you have a very, very high dwell time. And from that comes an an ownership over the product. And the more space you give someone to feel like they own it too, the more they want to do that. And and that's why it's it's so important for us that they see themselves as co-owning the brand as well and contributing to it and get to have brilliant ideas and, you know, tell us when we do something that sucks. So you have this incredibly strong community of snagglers, but the community building can go much further than that, can't it? Yes, one of the things we're we're looking at at the moment is really how we can support that community better. You know, what other types of groups and community support could we offer that would make life better for snagglers? So, you know, one of the things we know they love to do is we know they love outfits of the day because it's about being able to go, look, here's the outfit I pulled together and loads of people to go, you look amazing, you know, and, and having that kind of epic start to the day, I think just makes people feel so much better. So we're going to create groups around that. So we'll be able to actually move those conversations from the places where they sit outside of our control into places where we can help a little bit more. Obviously, letting them being, you know, moderated freely, but then being able to ask us for help when they need it, being able to ask our opinion when they need it, being able to kind of feedback when they need it as well. So I think we've got plans now for at least an other two kind of big community groups. But we're also kind of revitalising our community team at the moment as well so that we can do more when we reach out and we can be more empathetic and we can find those places where, you know, people want to talk to us so you know some of the things that have been suggested is places like reddit you know making sure that you have places away from normal social media where people like to talk and they like to have their questions answered and they like to be why should we make people come to us rather than being in the spaces where they feel most comfortable so our plans are very much to go out into the world into spaces that aren't ours at the moment and to to try and give people that kind of snaggler community within those spaces too what is your attitude to risk uh, i mean how did it feel when you thought you really might lose the whole thing it's so much a part of your life isn't it it was it was really hard. I mean, I think to be an entrepreneur, you, you need to have like a high level of comfort with risk because, you know, you, you don't really get a lot of choice. Um, although I think as a business gets bigger, you feel that risk more just because there are more lives on the line. And, you know, every decision you make can have a massive impact on on what happens. And, you know, suddenly you know, a a bad decision that month means a bad sales month, which, you know, has knock-on effects and you you can't have as much risk in the business as as you want. And I think that's something we very much try and guard against and still let people make the decisions that they want to make. And you still have to be brave and go, you know, it might not work out, but it's better to make the decision. I always tell everyone I will never be angry at anyone for making a decision. I think not making a decision is way more dangerous to a business. Mm. That you know, If they've made a decision, I will back them. I might make them reverse the decision eventually, but they'll never be in trouble for it. You don't read business books or, or press, do you? No, I don't. Um, I think that if you want to carve your own path, you can't 
be too focused on what other people do because at the end of the day you will inadvertently copy them and it won't be because you're trying to it will just be because you know you that there's already a, a line in the sand and everybody always follows you know existing trails so I try not to see the trails so I go my own way and, and don't get influenced by it. You're listening to The Piper Podcast with me Mary Nightingale and I'm talking today to Bree Reed of Snag. I want to talk to you about numbers in a minute, but before we do that, you said this wonderful thing about, you said snag is all about letting your freak flag fly. I love that. But what does it actually mean? So I think that's very much about, you know, working for snag. Everybody is very different. Everybody is their own person. We don't try and push a kind of corporate culture on people. We don't try and make people behave in a certain way. And everybody can just be who they are. And that's true of people that work in the warehouse. That's true of our customer service team. That's true of everyone else in the business. People are who they are. I was interviewing for a relatively senior role and it was me and our head of marketing who were interviewing it. And, you know, we, we switched on, we, you know, turned it on. And the candidate was just looking really confused. And I was like, you know, as eventually I was like, are you okay? Like, you know, what's what's wrong? And she's like, I've just never been interviewed by two people in pyjamas under a blanket before. <laughs> I was like, oh yeah, that's not what you're, that's not what you're supposed to do, is it? Like interview people in your pyjamas under a blanket. But both our CMO and I frequently do that. Um because like why not it's comfy so yeah I think it's it's things like that where we don't even really realize we're letting our freak flags fly but that's completely acceptable for her to do it's acceptable for me to do and it's just like that whoever whoever we are you're you're allowed to be that you know it's it's cool and we all love you and accept you for it it's very seductive and it's a you know it's a really vivid picture you paint but how do you scale that I mean how does it to me what you're describing feels like a you know cottage industry and yet the numbers defy that so how do you keep that sense of I don't know community and I just think you scale it you know I don't think it's as complicated as people think and I think for us a big part of it is not letting too many lines of management creep in and still giving everyone line of sight so we have one massive whatsapp chat that has everybody in the company in we make all the decisions in that chat in front of everyone so everyone gets their chance to contribute and everyone sees what's going on and everyone knows the problems that the business is having and the great things that happen in the business and I think it's really important to do that in a visible way and you know technology has allowed us to include 120 people in that chat where if we were doing that face to face that would be impossible you know so I think we use technology a lot to be able to extend the way that we communicate and everybody really understands what they contribute to the business so everybody feels like they should have a voice and and voices their voice a lot and when you do hire someone are you hiring someone like you so so the things we've learned about hiring people for me there's one very key question which is do you ever want to talk to anyone on the phone and if they say yes, then they're the wrong person for us. Nobody likes talking on the phone. It's too kind of extroverted, for want of a better word. Everybody's quite introverted. We use Messenger to communicate a lot. We use WhatsApp. We, you know, we think about things in different ways. So it's people who are very extroverted, who, you know, want to go out a lot, who really love the social side of the office, who want to call people up every morning for a chat. Those people tend not to fit in well so you know we do quite a lot of warnings for people now as well Tom's very good at he's got a 30 minute warning lecture that he gives people before they join about all the things they're not going to enjoy um, working at Snag but somehow team drinks and Christmas parties no we don't not going to happen no. he's shaking his head yeah not for us so many people don't want those things so many people value true flexibility like you know I, I don't care where you are you don't have to tell me that you're sick today you know it's like you go do you if you want to go move to Spain for six months if you want to work from the beach you know we don't care you know go fit it around your life you know if you want to collect the kids from school or you know you want to do yoga every day at like four no nobody cares you you fit this around your life and you live your life the way you want to do it and you get judged on 
outcomes on your outcomes you know and and that for a lot of people is is transformative and those are the people that that work for snag is the people that value having that flexibility in their life and still want something they can be super passionate about but can't do the whole you know i'm gonna sit at a desk eight hours a day so people can see me sit at a desk but also the people who work for snag are a lot of them snagless aren't they yeah, they are. And, and we recruit primarily from our own socials. So, you know, the first place that we ask when we're recruiting for a job is we ask our socials. We ask the snagglers, you know, do you want this job? Because we would much rather a snaggler took the job than anyone else. So Because they love the product and they, they, love they the get product it. And, and they get it. And it's also it's giving back, right? We, we try and give back as much from that community as possible if we hire a freelancer, if we... You know, we're doing a video for something. If we need something catered, if we need all of those things, we'll ask the snagglers first because we put back into our our community as much as we can. Now, I I want to bring you on to 71770, which, as you know, Piper believes these are the, the key inflection points when things need to really step change. All right. So how do you relate to those inflection points? I think it's really interesting because particularly when it comes to to staff numbers and I think, you know, when you've got that kind of, you know, that small kind of 17 staff numbers to start with, it's the first time you go, I can't manage all of these people myself. We need to have some kind of, you know, structure in there. People need to do stuff more by exception. You know, you can't you can't control all of that yourself. And I think we keep seeing that, you know, definitely 70 as well when you get more people you need to change your technology to be able to deal with it and to be able to facilitate everything in the way that you do and the way that we see it at snag is we do stuff until it breaks and when it breaks we fix it and then it keeps going until it breaks again and then we fix it again and you know we've done a lot of breaking a lot of fixing but for us it's it's that kind of that process we try not to get too caught up in the fact that we can't let it break because you you don't even know what's going to break you know you have no idea you just have to kind of keep going but you need to have the flexibility within the organization to be able to fix stuff when it does go wrong mm. and in terms of your numbers now where, where are you so we've got about 120 staff now we are about 40 million turnover so we've definitely got um, a lot more to go before we get our turnover up to 70 million. The growth has been phenomenal, hasn't it? So you, you, I mean, let's just run through those numbers. You launched in 2017. So we actually started trading in April 2018. So we started doing the development of the product in, in 2017. But we didn't trade until April 2018. And our, our financial year ends in, in August. So we only did four months in our first financial year. And I think we did something like 100k. And then, so you were turning it over something like fifteen thousand a month, pretty much immediately. Yeah, yeah? immediately. Um, then in the next year, we did um, just over three million, um, which was quite a quite a big jump. Um, so about three hundred thousand a month. Yeah, and then after that, we went to um, twelve million to a million a month, and then over COVID, um, we doubled that again to, to twenty four million. Um, so you know that that starts to become two million a month, which is quite a lot, and now um, we're at about four million a month, which is is mind blowing. And also to maintain that growth throughout COVID, we did about fifty percent of what we could have done without COVID. Um, it felt hard as it went through it, but when we look back at the numbers, we were like, actually, you know, we we did really quite well. And now we've diversified to make sure we have lots of indoor clothing and outdoor clothing. So if it ever happens again, we can sell people comfy loungewear. So, yeah, because uh, I saw you you did a big announcement on on your website about that. And how difficult was that decision to? I mean, it's just big diversification, isn't it? You're you're now moving away from the core aim, which was tights that fit. So you're no longer just snag tights, you're snag everything. I mean, where, where does it go from here? Yeah, I mean, it's been it's been fascinating process because, again, we were very much led by the snagglers in terms of what they wanted us to develop. Um, and leggings was, was the kind of the first big thing we did. And those have been an absolute like runaway success. People adore them. Um, we did skirts as well, which went, you know, phenomenally. Um, swimwear was interesting because it went really well but we really hit people's oh my god I can't wear that like I, I'm not confident enough to do that so it took a lot of kind of persuading people that you know they could wear it and do you it wear it to, I wear it yeah I went to Greece this summer and I wore all of our stuff um, and would that have been a first for you um, 
probably the year before it would have been a first for me, but it was definitely like a step, a step forwards. And I think that's how a lot of our, our snagglers felt with it. And now we're getting, you know, lots of positive feedback and people are going, oh my God, I really, I'm so glad I did it, you know, so, so glad. But that was a definite hand-holding moment with them where they were like, you know, this is, you're pushing, you're pushing us now, which is, is good. People need to be pushed, right? We've been working on bras for over a year. We're on our 29th prototype now. Um, and it's almost ready so we're we're super psyched about that that should be early next year and we've got our range of like snuggly onesies and robes and stuff which is all launching um, around Christmas time which is going to be really good so we can keep people snuggly and happy in the home as well as like nicely tighted outside the home as well. And with pockets is the thing explain about the pockets Everything we do has pockets. So you know, we actually, um, we've commissioned a bit of research around why women's clothes don't have pockets. And you know, there's lots of terrible reasons for this. You know, I mean, one of them was women shouldn't have any money. So, you know, they don't need pockets because they'll just put money in that. Um, other ones were, you know, women shouldn't have their hands in their pockets because they should always be busy looking after their home or their children. So, Where you know, did you get this stuff? It's really, but this is like what people used to believe, you know, that this was, you know, pockets were for active, valued members of society and that wasn't women. And, and of course, we always have our handbags. Yes, our, you know, we're allowed a little pouch to carry with us, <laughs> um, but, you know, we're, we're not allowed anything that's really practical. So it's interesting that suffragettes really tried to kind of put pockets back on the map. All their kind of rational dress had like loads and loads of pockets in. But since then, we've kind of gone, oh, you know, women don't need pockets. So we've never actually gone back and went, you know, we should really do this. So one of the things at Snag is everything we do has pockets. So, you know, you can always have lovely big pockets that will fit a extra large iPhone in because, you know, everybody should be able to put their phone in their pockets. And I think it's just... Those things in fashion that don't get re-looked at, they don't get reinterpreted, that people don't take a second to go, look, is this how we should be today? You know, should we still be doing these things? You know, again, like using the word plus size. So, you know, we're size inclusive. We do everything from, you know, tiny sizes to big sizes. But like why have a special section of a store where you send people to so they can't shop with their friends? You know, I was um, actually talking to a a chairman of uh, a high street retailer and I asked him I was like you know why don't you you know why don't you merchandise all your sizes together why does a plus size person have to go to a special area of the shop and he was like because if thin people knew that we did their clothes that they buy in big sizes as well they wouldn't want to buy them <laughs> it's like what like I mean what really that's that's what you believe but that's still an overriding attitude that they have in high street fashion now. You've called it the fashion patriarchy. Yes. Is, is, it a, is it a man thing? It is. I think it's massively a man thing. You know, fashion buying has historically been done by men and you're in a kind of, in a cycle where you never get to feedback. I mean, you know, when has anyone got the opportunity to say anybody whether their tights fitted or not? You know, does M&S care if your tights fit or not? They don't care. You just buy them, they don't fit, you throw them away and you never you never feed it back. And I think the lack of caring and the the structure around that, I think, does make it a patriarchy. And I do think women and and clothes have been held hostage and are still held hostage to it. Now, Piper talks about building brand legends and at the heart of this is the importance of brands staying really resolutely true to their purpose what is snag's purpose our purpose is very much to let people be who they really are so it's about being accepting it's about being inclusive it's about understanding our community and giving them what they want and what they really need and i think how we stay true is because we have those constant dialogues with them and they get to decide the future of snag and our new products and what we do as much as we do and they will always contribute you know equally if not more and what is snags the brand's tone of voice it's just about love so it's really interesting we we hire what we call um, community champions and those are the people that go out and they talk to the snagglers so they manage our socials they answer our questions they answer our emails and 
we hire people who love, you know, we hire people who love the product, who love customers, who love people, who care, who want to make those people's lives better and happier. I got asked at a conference once where someone was like, you know, I was talking about acceptance and inclusion and you know, at the end, they were like, so, you know, do we really need to care about this stuff or can we just pretend? And I was <laughs> like, you have to really care. Like, you can't just pretend this stuff. So, you know, for us, it is about hiring people who love. It's hiring the right people who have the right heart and they become the tone of voice. You know, it's not about us setting it. It's about if you love the customer and you want them to be happy, you have the right tone of voice. But inclusivity has become one of those buzzwords, hasn't it? Every business has to be inclusive. And a lot of it's faked, isn't it? I think it's a very... It's it's a tick box for a lot of people, but I also think customers know that, right? They know if you don't really care and, you know, they know if you're using, you know, a slightly bigger person in your ad and then you go to your website and every image is, has been edited to look super skinny... 60% of women are over size 16 and 60% of women on our website are over size 16. You've just been so conditioned by looking at websites which don't have a variety of sizes in that when you look at it, you go, oh, it's all plus size. If you open your door and you look outside, you see a variety of people and that's what you see on our website. All we want to do is represent the world like it really is. When I see a lovely email and I get emails every day from people going, I, I know it's just tights, but it's really weird, but they kind of changed my life. And you're like... You know, you're not the first person that said this. Um, the first time we ever put an advert up on Facebook that had a plus size person in, the amount of hate that that advert got was ridiculous. You know, this person's disgusting. Why are you showing someone like this? They're so gross. Why would anyone ever buy your product if you advertise them like this? You know, the the hatred was just ridiculous. And now, you know, we can show a picture of like a chubby man in you know fishnets with like blue hair and people go oh my god doesn't he look amazing and I'm like you know what we help do that we help change that that acceptance we played a part in that and yeah I mean how can you you not feel good when you know you've you've helped change the world a little bit for the better. The other buzzword of course is sustainability and lots of businesses now pay lip service to that some people might say what is your plan for sustainability because I know you have one so I, I always get in trouble for not talking about this enough because for us it's it's very much uh you know is, is what we do to be able to get up in the morning and, and look at ourselves in the mirror you know so it starts with our factory which is solar powered carbon neutral we dye our tights with vegan dyes. We reuse the water that that dyeing goes from. It's all recycled water. We're single-use plastic-free through our whole supply chain. So um, we don't use any any plastics through that. We don't even use it in our postage. It's all paper. Um, we make sure that everyone who plays any part in making a snag product is paid the living wage, not just the minimum wage, but everybody gets paid fairly for their work. And because it bothered me a lot that polyamide or, or nylon 6, which is what the majority of tights are made of, is the non-recyclable element. We work with a university, with our factory and a university in Italy, and we've developed a way to recycle nylon 6, which is, is you know unheard of. So we recycle all the tights that are sent back to us and we recycle them into permanent component parts which are used in tights machines or used in the automotive industry. So we can really kind of create that, that kind of circle loop back to just do better. We try not to, you know, stick to a whole load of, of labels with it. We try just to do the right thing. You know, we know our merino wool tights, we know the, the farm that it comes from in Australia. We, we know it's mulesing free. We know, you know, the sheep live like adorably happy lives, you know. And, and for us, it's much more important that we know the welfare of, of anyone and every sheep that has anything to do with snag. And we know that they're properly looked after. And we know that we've minimised every opportunity within our supply chain, you know, bad things that we we can things that we can control so it's it's never a process that's finished there's always more to do with it but it's absolutely fundamental to what we do as a brand i mean we also our leggings for example are made out of recycled viscose which is literally the most sustainable fabric on the planet and um 
normally leggings that are made from that fabric retail for about £140. Um, we did ours for £25.99 because you should be able to afford ethical and sustainable clothes no matter what your income is and there's no reason that people should be charging more because it's ethical to make more profit because that's not ethical so we try and do mass market products which are super affordable which are also ethical because everybody deserves to make those decisions how do you keep your prices mass market we can be a sustainable business, we can make profit on that, um, but we don't try and move it past those parts. So we're not a business that will go, oh, look at this, we can make 90% margin on this. You know, we, we don't do that. We very much base our costs of a fixed margin so that our prices are as affordable as they possibly can be. Tell me about your plans internationally, because you're already exporting, aren't you? Yep, so um, about a third of our business is in the UK now, a third of it's in Europe and a third of it's in the US and the rest is in Australia. We know we've got markets in those places, but we know, for instance, in the US that we could be much, much bigger. So the US has a bigger body size average, doesn't it? So that must be a huge opportunity for you. It's got, you know, massive population as well. So, you know, that's a that's a huge market for us. And in terms of the the tights markets in the world, the US is the biggest one, followed by Germany, followed by the UK, followed by Mexico. So there's lots of places that we know sell a lot of tights that that we don't over-egg at the moment. So we need to be very kind of bullish on the US, um, really interested in kind of South America. We have a massive following in Asia as well, particularly in Korea, which is something that we've never... You know, we've we've never done anything with or, or tried to kind of cultivate. So we've got that side to, to go down as well. So there's there's lots of opportunities for us everywhere. In Korea, you are seen as super fashionable, aren't you? Which, yep. which is sort of ironic when in a sense you're anti-fashion. Would that be yeah. a fair assessment? Yeah, I think, I think we're very much about kind of revolutionising fashion and, and making it different. But in Korea, they're like, oh, my God, I love the patterns, love the colours, love the style, love the aesthetic. And they very much buy them for, you know, their, their fashion elements, which is we love because we're like, we try and do, you know, tights that fit and we try and make them cool and fashionable and different and for them actually to be acknowledged as that you're kind of like yeah that's so cool and you see these um like awesome kind of influencers style them in these like amazing ways and you're just like yeah that's that's epic I mean it really is and and when you talk about the opportunities that are out there if you continue growing at this sort of rate you're going to be at 70 very soon aren't you you know 70 million turnover are you still going to be able to continue working on your phones are you still going to be under a blanket having a nap I think so I mean it's it's just scaling in the way that we've continued to scale you know I think it's about having the technology that backs it up it's about the flexibility of working it's about hiring the right people it's about you know having the right conversations it's an empowering people to make their own decisions within their role and and go from there so, yeah, I mean, I, I hope we can keep doing it at 70 million. I think Snag could become a billion dollar brand. I mean, that's that's what we want to do. I mean, the market's worth 56 billion dollars. That's just tights, let alone, you know, leggings, skirts, all the other areas we're in now, you know. And, and why not do that? And why not be able to reach all those people and make them feel so much better about themselves? And what about your role when it's a billion dollar business? That, that's always a that's always a kind of interesting one for me. Um, but I think for me, you know, I see myself as the voice of the customer. So my job is to talk to the snagglers and to understand them and to translate them and to bring that back into the business. So I hope however big the business gets, I can do that. And whether or not, you know, I still run the day to day anymore. I think that's that's the part I bring the value to. There will be people listening to this who will be hugely inspired. What would be your advice to potential founders out there who who want to emulate who are inspired by you my biggest piece of advice is always don't listen to advice um (laughs) which i think is you know for me i think when you start out and you have an idea and you have a really good idea everyone will tell you to change it you know everybody will go you know oh you can make it more expensive you can make it more premium if you did this you could put it on subscription you could do this with it you could do that with it and you'll get so much unsolicited and solicited advice around your product and your business and I think ultimately you need to understand what your product is understand who the market is and if you've got that product market fit right and you're convinced and you know it in your heart 
you shouldn't change anything. And unless that person can 100% convince you that their way is better than your way and you can test it and it is better than your way, don't listen to that piece of advice. You know, you listen to your heart, you do what is right for you, you listen to your gut and you do that. It's lovely to talk to you. Bree Reed, thank you. Thanks. Thanks.